Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is Paolo Samut. Paolo is a paranormal researcher who practices a low-tech approach when visiting haunted locations, where the experience is key in exploring unusual phenomena and methods such as psychic questing and techniques from systems of magic are used as part of the investigation. Prior to the interview, he sent me an essay he has written which discusses his methodology in more detail and is the focus of our conversation. It was a really fun and wide-ranging chat, exploring the nature of ghosts and hauntings, the value and meaning of such happenings, and some of the unusual experiences Paolo has had whilst investigating the paranormal. Enjoy! Paolo, welcome to the podcast. Hello, hi Rick, greetings. How did your interest in the paranormal begin? Um, well, it's been all my life really. Um, I mean, certainly starting off from a very early age. Um, very, very, very young me, I lived in a house in Southampton. And at the time, yeah, there was like a minor poltergeist activity. When I was very excited. Uh, you know, these are things like, you know, the day before we were going on holiday to Malta, I was up the night before, I was up reading late, and like, you know, I was in a room with my head and my brother, and, you know, things were just rolling about and moving about. Nothing dramatic, it wasn't Hollywood, but, you know, things were moving, and, you know, seven-year-old me was getting very freaked. But, you know, I didn't really do much about it. You sort of run down, talk to my parents, and they sort of calm me down, and I go back to bed. It really got a bit more dramatic, though, a few years later. Um, in 1979, we moved to a house in Lincolnshire. And it's a very old haunted cottage on the um, on the east coast. And moving there, things really started kicking off quite quite quickly. I mean, the first six months we spent in that house, I was always seeing people moving out of the corner of my eye through the house. Now, these always looked like family members, but I always knew that that person was always out of the house at the time. So it was like something was taking their form. And so I started getting interested, interested then and seeing what was going on, trying to understand what was I seeing, why was I seeing my brother walking about when I knew he was out of the house, that sort of thing. And that sort of lasted for about six months. And at the same time, you know, other things were happening and other family members commented upon it. So I knew that, you know, points where we'd all gone to bed at night, we'd all hear the sound of like chairs scraping on the floor downstairs. Uh, nothing was actually moved, but, you know, there were certainly sounds nobody could explain in the house. And, you know, after sort of, you know, a sort of a toothing period in the house, it's all quietened down a little bit. Until one event, um, a couple of years later on, at the time, my niece was living with us in the house. And there was a time when um, myself and my brother were alone in the house. Everybody else, um, including my niece, were away on a shopping trip about 20 miles away. And my brother and I were playing and I looked up and I saw all my niece were standing there, which I thought was a bit odd. And then my brother Alan said to me, did you just see Jenny standing there? And I sort of looked at him and obviously whatever we saw, we both saw the same thing at the same time. We described clothes. We, you know, I never cued him. So when he said it, he'd said it after I saw something. So we were both seeing the same thing at the same time. Um, I'm not sure that was. Um, I have some thoughts on that. Now, there's one thing to add to that before I sort of, you know, have my thoughts. And that's a few years later on, I was a bit older. I was in that sort of time coming out of university before I went to London to start my first job. And um, at the time, I was staying at home. And my mum told me about an experience that she had that night. And, you know, she was awake at night. She was reading. My dad was asleep. And at the time, because, you know, my brothers were still quite young at the time, they used to keep the landing light on. And she said that when she was awake, she saw something move through the lounge without a face. And the strongest thing she said was that her impression was it had no face. So rolling that back, I think there's something in the house which is not a ghost. It's something which seems to take people's forms. And I think she caught it when it wasn't sort of dressed to somebody else. So I'm not sure what's in the house. I've been asked to leave it alone. But it got me very interested sort of, you know, throughout my life. In secondary school, I was reading as many books as I could find on psychic development. I used to go to the local library and sort of, you know, borrow and then smuggle home books from the occult, you know, writers at the time, J.H. Brennan, Crowley, of course, um, Dolores Ashcroft, Liberty, and so on. And just reading up as much as I could about the supernatural. We're not really getting anywhere, just being perplexed by it. 
I'm of course reading books about ghosts, and I think you know many many people my age. I'm I'm fifty. We're reading the Osborne Book of Ghosts, you know, the sort of late 70s, 80s and stuff. You find those scary pictures we all saw and turn the page fast and then turn and have a good look, that sort of thing. <laughs> so all that really became, you know, the, um, the bedrock of what, what became, you know, pretty much my out of work, what I do when I'm not doing paperwork, which is IT, nothing to do with any of this. Um, so, yeah, that, that really got me started. Um, and from there, went to university, fairly normal, not much really happened then. I was just busy sort of just being a student doing stuff. And then after university, I sort of started, you know, getting interested again. I joined the ghost club and went on sort of, you know, what became many, many investigations, which, you know, continue less nowadays, even less nowadays with COVID, but, you know, they're still the old one. And learning a bit more about magic and how it fits together, what ritual magic really is, how far it is from the fictional concept of that, you know, the Harry Potter or the Paul Daniels as well. But, you know, trying to build up a model of how reality might work. I've probably come out of it with more questions than answers, but that's really got me where I really am with things. And it's it's where a lot of thinking is sort of lying, a lot of future sort of projects are lying as I sort of investigate more and try to find out more. Right. Okay. So just going back to that house you were living in, was it something, was that activity, was it something that you discussed as a family and, and had ideas about what might be happening? I mean, in terms of sort of the, the, the classic explanation for a ghost, which is things like former occupants or tie, being tied to the history of the, the place itself. Not that much, surprisingly. I mean, um, our family goes back a, a long way, you know, from my dad's side to Malta, and there's quite a lot of sort of ghost stories from there. Um, and there's you know, a few ghost stories from my side as well. So we've always talked about ghost stories. We always used to share ghost stories and sort of, you know, did, just were interested in that. And, of course, growing up, it was always dismissed, no such thing. But, you know, there was always been a belief, really, that you just don't tell children it's, it's true. Um, but there was, you know, we, we used to share the odd experience what happened, but it was always kept very low key. So it wasn't really brought out. I think, you know, because, you know, I was there, I was like, you know, from like nine to about, you know, when I was at university, nine to 16, 17 there. Not too much was talked about it because my brothers and sisters and at the time were very young. So we just didn't really make an issue of it. Mm. Um, it got a bit more active later on. In my first year at university, my sister passed away. And that led to my mother getting very interested in spiritualism and so on. And so from there, you know, she sort of basically nicked all my Crowley's, nicked my books and read them all and sort of got interested in as well. So then we can much more open about talking these things. But before then, no, it wasn't really discussed. It was just left or something weird happened. Or we might say something quiet or, you know, my dad's mum might say something to me to anyone was interested. But it wouldn't be someone would say around the table because you don't want to scare anybody else. Yeah, yeah, of course. So... Was your introduction to magic was it was it through your involvement with the the ghost club? No, it was it started before I was getting interested, sort of at home still. Again, as I said, I was you know, the local library had books by Crowley, books by Herbie Brennan and so on. And uh, you know, once I hit once I hit the adult section, I was like, oh, like whatever age I was, or I was off about twelve or something. Yeah, I was ever sort of checked them out. I know mum would not have approved at the time. So I was like smuggling them home and reading them and taking them back, you know, a week or two later. So I started reading about it all then. And again, I didn't do much of it then. It's a very small house. Um, so you don't really have a space to sort of really mess around apart from, you know, a little bit of meditation as you're falling asleep at night. But you know, I'd started reading then and, you know, I'd, I'd picked up enough books and bits and pieces and that by the time I hit university, I did have a, a fair number to take with me and read more and go into more detail. But again, university, you're in a horse of residence. You don't really have much space to do it. Plus, you're too busy going out and doing things. So apart from reading and not reading a book to the candidacy, which I wasn't going to read, it was um, it was just mostly reading until really I, I got past university. I got into my first sort of flat share in London. And then, you know, I joined the Servants of Light group at the time and started going through that. But, you know, lots of reading beforehand and then starting formally, you know, years later, 18, 19, whatever, about 1996 it would have been. Hmm. So, um, how did your interest in magic develop? Um, well, it's still developing. It's still changing. I mean, at the time, from the books I happened to be reading, which is you know, 
by sheer luck, the ones I had in my library. I didn't take the Crowley route. I mean, I've read about Crowley, I read his bio and stuff, and, um, but okay, interesting, you know, interesting character. Would like to have met him, but wouldn't like to invite him into my house. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I was going through the servants of light groups. It was very much a very, you know, a, a very capitalistic system at the time, sort of. The Golden Dawn sort of took a branch to sort of T140 was in the light, which then sort of branched out to the, the servants of the light to, to cut it short. It was a more complex history, of course. And so I was sort of working with that. So we, I didn't complete the course, but, you know, I sort of got quite a way through it. And, um, you know, you're working on the middle pillar exercise. You're working on building up the tree of life in your aura. You're working on really what I've realised later on was the basic psychic development exercises. Um, and so from there, it got to the point where I was learning all that and then still reading around things. So from that, that's about the time when I joined the ghost club, started going on ghost investigations and realising that the when I did the exercises beforehand, I was a little bit more attuned to what was going on. I was getting better experiences. I was not exactly seeing things, but feeling things better. Hmm. And also about that time, I started getting interested in, in psychic questing as well, sort of work, which Andrew Collins, Graham Phillips started um, in the 1979 and through the 80s, books like The Black Alchemist and um, The Seventh Sword. The idea that you go out to a, a site, not necessarily a haunted site, but certainly a site, uh, whether it's say, a stone circle, could be a haunted house, it could be just a patch of forest. And you're doing a meditation, a visualisation there and seeing what arises and seeing how it might connect you to other sites. So all this started coalescing together at about the same time. Wow, okay. So can you talk a little bit more about that psychic questing? That sounds really interesting. Yeah, it's um, it, it's been one of the sort of major influences of how I approach everything nowadays, I always have especially magic it's um andrew collins graham phillips sort of founded it or founded it they sort of repopularized it in the 70s late 70s and the idea was again you got like a but they took the idea that groups like the um, um groups which investigated the paranormal such as the ghost club and others they were still spending their time trying to prove a phenomena and so they took the premise let's let's assume it is it's real let's assume it works let's see if we can run with it and so we were sort of going out to sites and doing meditations, coming back, hypnotising each other, having experiences, having information downloads from entities. And it led them on various quests to sort of find seven swords, which all led to other things and bits and pieces. And um, also to find out, it led them to um, physical objects as well buried on site. So the whole Black Alchemist thing was, you know, this, this guy in Essex was leaving some dodgy stuff in certain places in Essex at the time. And they were going there, psychically finding them and clearing them out. And there's a whole, you know, a whole book on there that's too big to go into now. And, you know, it, it's taking it from there and looking, actually, can we go to a site, not waste any time trying to prove anything's real? And we'll talk about that, we'll talk about photographs and stuff in a bit. But actually, what can we find? What do we sense if we get to a site? And that's probably the first thing I want to say when I'm doing anything is go to a site, go to a site regularly and just see what you feel and see how you feel. And... Psychic questing really blends into that because when you start feeling, you start getting information coming through. And that starts giving you things to actually try out, things to test. When you've got enough information, you can go to a library and check some of it. Well, that's what they were doing. You've got the internet and check it nowadays. Um, but it's, it's that interaction between a site, information, people and other sites and how it all sort of meshes together. Hmm. So, you know, from that, it, again, I think it's, again, it, I mean, you know, Andrew and Graham have mentioned it does go back far, far earlier than their work. It's, you know, there's, there's, you can look up the term of tradition in Tibet, which is something very similar. You can look at, you know, shamanic principles. You can look at any way of interacting with the landscape, which, when I was reading about magic, it became almost like the opposite side of it. Because magic at the time, and it's changed a lot now, you know, post-80s, 90s, um, noughties, because now many more traditions have come in. We have access to more systems we can read, learn, and practice about. But at the time, a lot of it was very Golden Dawn. A lot of it was very Lodgerum-based, very post-Masonic. Nothing wrong with that. It's all you know, psychic development. It's all spiritual development. But it takes it out of the landscape. But really interesting stuff is in the landscape. It's in more haunted houses. It's in more haunted forests. It's the places where you can go and have an experience. And so psychic questing was giving me the tools I needed to actually take the magic I was picking up at the time, visit the exercises like a middle pillar, and actually then go to the landscape and actually feel things, see things, sense things, and then sort of really feel that you're really there. Mm. 
do you have a, an example of that something that you a, a psychic quest that, that you did that exemplifies what you've you just talked about well not really a quest uh, but certainly you know it's the whole quests were tied together there's you know, been a few of them which you know andrew and graham have talked about which um were big years long and sort of involved lots of sites and lots of people um i was pretty much working on my own most of the time so nothing got as big as that but you know it's always been sort of the way things have fitted together so um i mean a more recent example from a few years ago it's um most recent ones in my mind, so I start with that. And it's you know, the woods behind my house are, are subjectively very haunted. Um, and you know, there's what we call maybe a genius loci there, spirit presence, fairy, if you want to say something like that. Um, and I was just walking there with um, a friend you know, a couple of years ago, and we sort of noticed it was quite active and didn't notice it before, so it was interesting. And you know, got back to mind that evening, we sort of just did some ritual. And it was nothing too dramatic. It was um, what Crowley would have called the um, the headless ritual. Um, no, sorry, Crowley would have called it a bornless ritual, but more properly, it's the Gnostic headless ritual. And it's just a ritual to sort of get into contact with spirit. And it all tied back to that place in the forest. And literally, we could feel and sense and get flashes of image of the spirit from the forest actually walking down the end of my garden from the woods and actually not entering the house, but reaching into the house. And you know, the cats were acting a bit odd around it, and we certainly saw something. And yeah, it's again, it, it's it's taken out of the actual ritual space. It's taken out of the the fact that we just did something to put where interacted with the landscape, which was there just just a stone's throw away. Um, other examples of it were again, it's taking a psychic questing technique. Is the you know, is, is going to a haunted house? If I go to a haunted house, I wouldn't investigate it with thermometers and Gauss masters and so on. What I would do is actually go if I do a meditation. I would do a visualisation. I'd actually speak to the spirits there and from there see how that interacts with me. And over the course of the evening, sometimes a bit later for dreams, it actually would give me more information about the place, which then would start clicking back and giving me things I can then later check out. Right, okay. Wow, that that, that must have been a, quite an amazing experience, the the interaction with that spirit of, of the of the wood. It's fair, and you know, it, it does become a two-way thing. It becomes a relationship, which again, yeah, magicians talk about, and it's more common now than we, we read back in the eighties and nineties, perhaps. So you know, again, it also it's me going there sometimes and picking up a little of the site. It's me going out there and leaving some biodegradable offerings off the site, you know, cake and some incense I can clean up the next day, that sort of thing. But you know, it becomes a, a rapport, then it becomes a communication, and you can go there, and you know, it's like you go there and you find it doing very subtle things sometimes, like it calms your moods. It opens your mind, and especially with things like lockdown. Um, you know, through most of last year, being stranded, I live on my own. You go to a site, and it's like you actually. This can be just weird psychology, of course. It could be very subjective, but you know, you're going there. It clears your mood. It fixes your mental health to an extent. It actually makes you feel better. Not just because you're going out for a walk outside, but because you're going out to actually speak to. Well, again, maybe friends is not the right word, but certainly. You know, something from that direction is how you begin to describe how the relationship begins to build in your mind with the spirits around you. Not that you see them, not that you necessarily hear them, but that you feel them. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I understand that. I mean, there's that classic sort of notion of talking to to plants, like gardeners talking to their plants. And I, I, I'll admit that I, when I lived in Nottingham, I had a favourite tree on my walk to work and I would say hello to it. So I fully appreciate that, building those sorts of relationships, which, which might seem unusual, but on an experiential level, are, are very worthwhile. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think, yeah, that's very much, yeah, the word experiential is definitely where I stand. It's, I, I'm very coy with the idea that we can never prove anything. I mean, you know, how long has humanity been around for now? You know, thousands, tens of thousands of years, perhaps. We've never proven any of this, but we've mm-hmm. had all these stories, all these accounts, you know, forever, yeah? Um, so, you know, we got, maybe we can't prove to anybody else that these things exist. All we really have are a bucket of anecdotes. But for ourselves, we have the experiences, and sometimes they're the things we really need. I think that's actually really valuable to walk away with. Because, you know, I can read Richard Dawkins, I can read James Randi, and look at a very cold, hard scientific fact. This does not fit into our physical worldview. It does not at all. But I can walk away with an experience and say, well, that also happens. And, you know, we can learn enough psychology to sort of eliminate the obvious. So we're left with a richer world than physics can paint, perhaps. 
Mm. I think it's pretty obvious that there's an experiential aspect to reality that's um it that doesn't have to be sort of in competition with the sort of evidence-based scientific aspect it's that's, that that seems to be the 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 frustrating thing is that that often these these two ideas seem to be put in competition when it doesn't seem like they really need to be yeah no I, I quite agree you know we don't need to be all we need, you know all we it's it's one of those things where you know we can go out and have an experience fairly easy. And it's one of those problems because some people never seem to have experiences. Some people seem to have a lot of experiences. Um, some, you know, I, the route I took is I, I, don't, I don't know. This is pure speculation. You know, I, I probably, my family do seem to be fairly psychic if, if there is a genetic you know, component to that, and I'm not sure. Um, some people seem to be very non-psychic, maybe because of a genetic component as well. You know, my sister, my brothers have all had experiences too. My older sister particularly has quite a few experiences. Um, but then, you know, the route I sort of took was less to sort of be natural about it when I started sort of looking at magic and psychic questing and paranormal investigation and finding out then, yeah, actually go out with an open mind and just be quiet on a ghost vigil and things will happen. Um, not dramatic. It's never Hollywood. You know, people think it's all Buffy for Vampire Slayer or something, but it's never like that. But certainly enough to make you think, actually, how did that happen? What happened there? Um, but then you've got the sceptics who think nothing happens, and I think they want it to be justified in a measurable, scientific, peer-reviewed, lab-repeatable way. And I think that's the problem. It doesn't seem to work like that. And unless we can solve that problem, I think we're always going to be two, you know, two, two sides of, of the same view on reality. Mm, yeah. So in, um, in the essay you, you sent to me, there's a section where you talk about the definitions of ghosts, and I'm wondering... With the techniques that you you've learned, how has that um, influenced how you how you look at what ghosts might be? And for in, in general, for for people who might not have done the, sort of the psychic questing that you've done, and and in a general way, I mean, what what do you think is the most useful way to look at what ghosts might be? That's that's a that's a big complicated question. That's that's why I just, you know, I tend to simplify things because I la- language is complicated and it's why I tend to say, things go ding. That, yeah, yeah. That's all I can really say. You know, weird shit happens um, <laughs> because, you know, outside of that, we have different models, different possibilities. If we look at ghosts, we have a common idea is a ghost is the spirit of the dead. Um, again, we need to get into definitions of what is a spirit. Um, maybe some ghosts are recordings. But again, they call it the stone tape theory based upon Nigel Kill's um, TV show from the 70s. Maybe it's not recording on a stone tape. Um, the more you dig into all sorts of things that say New Age philosophy, all these things, you know, um, Deepak Chopra wrote a book called uh, Quantum Healing, I think. Yeah. Again, the word quantum, it's like it sounds good, it sounds scientific, but what does it really mean in this context? Yeah. Magicians talk about energy, and I think we use it in a different context. I say how a physicist would use energy. So we have to be very careful of our language here. And it's almost we have to sit back and redefine things all the time. Or we can use perhaps an Eastern language, which is just as impenetrable, maybe. Or we could have different language. And if you start doing too much of it, you sound like a nutter because you develop your own terminology. And it's like, where do we go with that? Because everyone looks at you, yeah? <laughs> so, you know, it's. I think the only way we can go forward at this point is to keep it as simple as possible. You know, a ghost is something which goes ding and is a bit weird. So once we start with that, we can say, okay, well, what is it doing? What, what qualities does it does it give us? Well, some ghosts do seem to be interactive. They do seem to have an, an intelligence to them, um, which means that maybe they're spirits of the dead. Maybe they're, you know, somebody come and mat to communicate a message. Somebody they're trying to say something, perhaps. Um, maybe, you know, some ghosts seem to be very sort of, you know, non-interactive. There's a classic case of the Roman ghost walking through the wall of the treasurer's house in York. And you know, a whole troop of Roman soldiers walk through, no interaction whatsoever. So maybe there's some sort of recording. But if we start applying terminology to that, we're going to lose people very quickly. So we've got to be very careful, I think, about that. And be very careful you know, to actually try to get the idea across without getting so lost in jargon that people go. And that's the same problem we have with magic and all sorts of things as well. If we're trying to get these ideas across, which is you know, things which nobody really digs into unless you're a weirdo who is interesting like me, then to actually share these ideas, we've got to actually think that people don't always have the same language we have. So, you know, I think with a ghost, there's a whole bucket of things that they could be, and I think we just lump them all together. Um, so rather than say a ghost with a meaning as a spirit of the dead, 
or a ghost with a meaning that it's a um a recording of some sort or maybe a ghost with a meaning that it appears to be something interactive in your house but maybe it's something entirely different which was never human in the first place you know again it's why i want to simplify it first and then maybe we complicate it afterwards i think simplify it accept accept that something odd is going on and then you know with, with diary with notes with research you can maybe start building a pattern of what it might be and even if you can't name it you can actually get an idea of what it might be doing what sort of thing it might be if something walks out of a room you know where they if someone walks through a wall where there used to be a door 40 years ago walks across to a wall where there used to be another door 40 years ago and does no interaction it's probably some sort of recording so we can draw conclusions like that to find out what it might be and then we can also look at other things which might be related or might not be related. Um, if you go to a, um, a spiritualist church and you might have some communication, some information might come to you which is meaningful, it's not exactly a ghost, is it? It's not a haunting. It's a spirit coming back, perhaps. Again, language. So how do we classify that? And can we group that in the same bucket as we would group, say, a haunted house? Um, similarly, you play with a Ouija board, you might get some information coming through. We know that the idea motor effect is what makes the glass move through our subconscious movements of our hands. But if information coming through is meaningful, where does that come from? And do we say that's a spirit world? Do we say that's our subconscious? Is there something in between? There's all these layers which make it such a really complicated question, which sounds like it's an easy question, but it's really a hard question. I know what you mean. It feels like ghosts can be different things to different people and they're no one experience is exactly alike, but there are there are certain commonalities which which encourage people to sort of look for an answer, I think. <laughs> and then also though, you get some really, you know, one off, offbeat, insane, crazy, weird experiences. The sort of things where the person is probably not lying, because if you're gonna lie, you make something a bit more believable. Yeah. I mean the classic I can think of is not actually a ghost story, it's a UFO story. And it's this guy in Wisconsin who was camping. And his account was that these aliens landed and traded him some pancakes for some water. And he had, he had the physical pancakes. They were actually kept in, I think, in a bit of the American equivalent of the RAF base for a time. They were, were analysed, described as being rather wooden and cardboard and not very nice. I think they were in a museum for a time. I'm not sure they are now. But yeah, you know, the idea that aliens would come and land and trade pancakes for water is insane, yeah? So... No, no, no normal person would make an account like that if they want attention, you know what I mean? So it's like, he must have had a very weird experience. There's probably some factors in there we don't even know what they are, but we have physical evidence of something. So like, where do we go with things like that? It's like, you know, raised eyebrows all the way because it's like, it doesn't fit anything. Um, you know, there's people who talk about, you know, accounts of Bigfoot, you know, in areas where you get like, high strangers like UFOs again. So why would the two fit together? There's there's these questions again, which mean that the world of the paranormal is very, very odd and it doesn't fit into our concepts. And our concepts, I think, are partially framed by our fiction and partially framed by the fact that we all live in a normal world. We have a very patterned world. Most of us, you know, we, we get up, have a shower, go to work, come home, have dinner, go to bed, etc. that sort of thing. And we like to think about the paranormal, if it's stranger than that, but maybe it's a lot stranger than that. And if we take that fact, it means that the fact that we know anything at all is, is, is a miracle because it's just beyond anything we have, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that the living are a, are a fundamental component of these sorts of paranormal experiences or that some ghosts um, have an agency where they, they, don't, they don't require uh, like a, a living person to see them? I mean, for example, do you think that the, the, the entities, the, like the faceless entity that that was seen at your house when and no one was in the house would you think that that entity was there or does it only appear when there are living people around to experience it there was an empty house haunted i don't know um that's a, that's a good point um i my personal view is i think that some things out there in the universe are again what we call spirits whether that spirit is, a, is an ex-human that spirit is a landscape a fairy whatever whatever we, we can go into all that terminology um and if it's if that's right then presumably it would have agency on its own it would do things but then the question might be that would that agency could it interact with humanity would that does that interaction exist if we're not there 
is that, is that that tree falling in the forest but no one's there to hear it? Um, yeah. You know, maybe our presence gives it view. I certainly think that part of what we experience, um, as I said earlier, you know, it's not like Buffy. So part of what we experience is is in our heads, and you know, I think that generally way our brains work is um, our our five senses um, pick up data from the outside world, and then our brains compile it into a virtual reality model, which is where we live. Yeah, and I think any psychic phenomena get, then gets fed into that as well. So it, the brain will use symbols it already has to actually shape what it might be picking up in a different way. Mm. So. You know, again, it's like again, it, maybe, maybe, um, you know, obviously, my brother walked from room to room and it was something else taking its form. Maybe my brain was imposing that form upon something else. It couldn't quite shape itself. It didn't have the mental language to shape itself. Yeah. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think I think there are some things out there which are certainly they have agency of their own and they're moving around doing their own thing. Um, but maybe other things like recording stone. But then maybe there's other factors involved. Maybe. There's something in energy around humans, energy not in the physics sense, of course, um, which actually gives these things shape to manifest. So, you know, if the guy, remember, Henry Martindale, who was the guy in the house in York, and if um, he wasn't there, that maybe there wasn't any, maybe consciousness is needed for that, that troop of maybe recording Roman soldiers to walk through to be perceived. Yeah, definitely. Um as well in your essay you talk about models of reality and you have a you have an example of sort of a layered model can you just talk a little bit more about that i I found that really interesting yeah i mean as i said it's um physics is fairly complete yep so you know if we look at at, say models of physics there's actually very few gaps in it there's a few bits we can quibble about like we can't tie quantum physics and classical physics together yet but generally, we could look at, say, the four basic forces of physics, electromagnetic, gravitational, weak nuclear, and strong nuclear. And we're looking for grand unified theories to type them all together. So a simpler version of that is we have, say, electricity, we have magnetism. We can tie those together to make electromagnetic. The idea is, can we tie the others together to make a single force? Now, because of that, we know that there's no gaps in physics. Um, there's not, say, an anti-gravity, because we, we, we won't necessarily find an anti-gravity, we won't necessarily detect an anti-gravity, but we know the shape of a problem to know that it's not there, or probably not there, you know, anything can go wrong. So if we're going to sort of look at that, physics is not really a way to explain these, this phenomena. And again, another reason why I don't really use tools like electromagnetic detectors. Um, but then we also have a problem that people are also having these experiences. And these experiences can affect physics, for example, telekinetic effects, poltergeist effects, things that physically move things. It's not purely mental. So if we need to think about this, we need to at least have some idea of how reality might be shaped to actually describe and explain how it might work. And, you know, this is just, you know, best guesses at this point. You know, frameworks to actually tie our thinking around. So these are not scientific models. They're just, you know, thought experiments to see if they fit. Now, for me, the one which really hits, first of all, my background's in IT, is um, is the OSI model of um, computation. And what it is, it's just a seven-layer model which looks at how computation goes from the metal at the bottom to various you know, electronic movements to various different gates working all the way up to how interfaces work and how the top, how, how your browser works, how your application works, how you sort of click go, your website moves to a new page, that sort of thing. And so it's got me thinking, maybe reality works like that. Maybe physics is just the top level. It's a bit we experience now. Just as when you're on your browser, that's a bit you experience then. Hmm. So can we postulate there's layers underneath of this? And again, I'm not talking about, say, a quantum layer. Um, I think quantum is part of what we call physics, our level we're on now. But maybe there's layers underneath where the other things exist. And um, it's, it's where the interaction might be, where all the interaction comes from. So... You know, for example, with our computers, we have an operating system. And um, with that, we can do all sorts of things. We can move our files about, we can copy files, we can upload files, download files, all those bits and pieces. Uh, but underneath all that, you've got the machine code level, which is the operating system is running on the machine code. It's, it's, it's programmed onto that, basically. But, um, you know, with that, you can do all sorts of things. You can move lots of data from one thing to another. You can, you know, play around with things you can't do with, with, with the operating system. So 
as a postulated layer, I think that reality is probably layered and maybe these things exist on a lower layer and they come through. And that gives us a way we can actually begin to reach and think about how other things might work. So, um, you know, I mean, there's been a haunted cases of investigators where um, literally the pipes are banging. Now, if I ask a, a plumber or a physicist what's happening, the, the plumber would say, oh, yeah, pressure's going up here, pressure's going down here, and that's why it bangs. And that's correct, totally correct. Um, but then I would ask, okay, but I'm also speaking to a ghost, and that ghost seems to be in the plumbing. I know this sounds mad, but, you know, it's also banging at the time I ask a question. And the banging asks, it gives you yes-no answers, and it gives you information which can be checked out. So where does that meta-information come from? Um, and that's, that's something interesting. And there's similar examples. Um, you can investigate ghosts with candle flame, for example. And again, we can take a candle flame, put it in a, you know, in, a, in a glass jar with a small airflow so there's no breezes to affect it. So let's eliminate the obvious. And you can speak to a ghost through that. And flickering gives you yes, no answers. Um, we can go deeper. We can take a, a, a tarot deck. We can shuffle it and randomise it as much as you want and get meaningful answers coming out. So many examples of this sort of thing where we actually have a system where, yes, of course, it's being shuffled. Yes, of course, the plumbing is caused by pressure drops. Yes, of course, these things are making these things move. But the fact that it happens at the right time, at the right place, means that something must be coming from somewhere else. So it leads me to there has to be other levels where these things come through. And we can speculate that then, therefore, the question is not where are they coming from, but what is the communication process between this speculated other level which means it affects physical phenomena on this level. Do you think that there's a, a spectrum of reality through these layers? It could be. I mean, we're guessing. I mean, occult systems do have, have, have layers like that. I mean, you have the Tree of Life in Kabbalistic imagery. You have, um, you know, in the philosophical ideas, the, uh, the breakdown was it starts with a physical body, then, it's, then it breaks down to an etheric body. Um, which is almost like an interface layer between what they call the astral body, which then takes you more into realms of, again, they use the word imagination, but be careful of that word. It doesn't mean what it sounds like it means. And then you go deeper into more spiritual and deeper levels. So, yeah, it could well be a, a continuum like that. Um, I mean, again, it's something to be care Again, language again. I mean, the word etheric, it comes from back late 19th century physics, postulated as an idea that just as water waves uh, is water wobbling, and that gives you a wave, uh, that when light waves are something else wobbling, you know, it's, it's, they're wobbling in the ether, they called it. Um, and you know, Einstein did work to show there's no such thing as the ether. But uh, before Einstein did that, the philosophers jumped in and goes, ah, that's what's wobbling, it's the ether. That's what our bodies are when we have out-of-body experiences. They're etheric bodies. And so we're left with that really unfortunate terminology. Uh, but yeah, it could well be a... a a continuum. It could be things we don't know. It could be even more. Complex. It could be a matrix. It could be all sorts of things. Not, not a matrix in the movie sense. A matrix in terms of it goes off in other directions as well. Yeah. So you know, it's um. I think there's various ways we can look at this. Again, it gets down to we don't have a language yet. It goes ding, and we know it goes ding. We we assume it goes ding. It, the only way it can go ding is to postulate that this must exist. But we don't know much more about it than to say this is probably existing. Hmm. You, you mentioned uh, Woodchester Mansion uh, and an investigation you, you did there in, in the section where you talk about this model. What, what happened there that sort of relates to, to this concept? Um, again, the haunting is layered there as well. So, again, I think, again, I mean, we ex- again, the subjective experience there, it's not just my subjective experience. Um, as an aside, I don't really have a words for that yet because, you know, um, the world can be broken up into objective. We both agree the moon is out there tonight. The world can be both a, a, a subjective, what I dreamed last night, what you dreamed last night. But then when several people have an experience, and several people don't have an experience in the same place, we don't have a language for that yet, yeah? Hmm. But um, Woodchester Mansion, again, it's, I've been there, I don't know, six, eight times. Um, as an investigator, been there more recently as a tourist. Um, it's a strange place. It's um, a place that's never been lived in. Um, it's built upon an older place which was lived in um, and then it was torn down and they're building a new place and the guy ran out of money but also there's stories there that back in the whatever it was 18th, 19th century I'm not so good on history, I don't do the history and so I know more about something so I don't influence myself yeah? um, but you know, something influenced the builders there but they ran away and left their tools so that, in those days when your tools are your livelihood it must have been really scary 
But anyway, back to what Chester Mansion you're going at. And when you first go there, it, it's a big, fairly cold building that's in a valley. The coldness is perfectly explainable. Um, very gothic, beautiful building, worth visiting. You know, it's open. It's a National Trust or a or something. Um, and, um, you know, it's worth having a look at and going to visit. And you go there at night, um, and you there with a group, yeah? And you can feel it's layered and layered. You can feel that uh, there's things there. There's rooms you start on, and it feels very... This just feels like a haunted house. It's fine. Again, how it's haunted when no one lived there, I don't know, unless it's based upon the site and the older building there. Um, but then you go there, and you find that as the evening goes on, the layers open up, and things get deeper and deeper. So, first of all, you're walking through, and a phenomenon occurs like through the corridors of a place, but a mist, a mist might appear and close again. That could be perfectly explainable. You know, it could be, it's in a valley, it could just be heat movement, all sorts of things like that. But then you start going out and you find that the sort of things you're sensing, it changes and it gets, it gets different. I mean, again, subjectively, it gets almost biblical in terms of the imagery people get is angelic, people get you know, imagery of spirit beings like that. And sometimes it's like, what it looks like is it's like a haunted layer and then something else is rising on top of a haunted layer. And then once a haunted layer manifests itself, the other thing can manifest itself on top of that. Um, so, yeah, it's that's what I have to say upon it. I mean, you know, I can give you some personal experiences. They're not, they're not actually that interesting compared to, say, when we talk about Ham House. Sure, yeah. I mean, whatever whatever you want to talk about is is absolutely fine. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, it certainly is a place which is definitely, I believe, haunted. It's definitely one where it goes into deep layers. And again, but... I've not looked into the circular. There's a book, uh, what is it? It's a bit of a debatable book, House of the Holy Spirit by Danny Sullivan, I think it is, which, again, I know, I know the guy's been questioned. Um, and, again, he looks at the sacred architecture of the site and all these sort of things. And I'm not sure that's actually the route. I think probably the location is more interesting than anything else. But, yeah, it's somehow the haunting there is odd that it's, like, it's layered. And that's really all I have on that one, you know. Um I probably should do more again. I've not, I've not been there recently. And it's ironically, it's about an hour's drive from me. I should have done more, but yeah, you know, it, it's one where I've just not come to recently. Right. I mean, with the, um, these different layers, do you think that communication between them is a is a natural part of that system, or can it be? Can things happen to make it more difficult? Can can other entities sort of struggle to get through to us? Is I, I'm wondering. I'm wondering if there's there's sort of a way to make the the system work and and other ways where if, if you're not doing the right things that it doesn't quite work i think that's exactly it i, mean, I think the layering is natural um, i think it's natural everywhere um and you know maybe woodchester i don't know maybe it's lucky on the right bit of geology for right bucky site i don't know why it's, it's it, it seems to be a bit more active um you know it could the rocks underneath it who knows yeah um but i think you know generally all, the whole, all, all things are like that. I think it's, it, it, it's, it's the shape of the, oh, I'm not going to say the shape of the universe, but the shape of maybe the natural world, the spectral world, whatever you want to say. But then I think, you know, but then if you're looking at, say, interfering with that, switching it on, switching it on, that's basically magic. See, that's what you're doing. That's what, you know, when a priest comes and does an exorcism, you know, he's clearing a site, he's actually just switching it off on that layer, isn't he? So, you know, I think, I think that, that's basically the definition of magic. It's, you know, interfering with the layers. Or, you know, definitely part of magic, certainly, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. So um, a little while ago, you mentioned Ham House, and, and you mentioned that that was an interesting place when we were having an email conversation prior to this recording. Tell us a little bit about Ham House and what you experienced there. Yeah, it's well, I did a book, I did Spiritual Seven Investigations about, what, 15 years ago. And it's a, um, it's a, you know, it's a very large mansion, um, I think National Trust again, um, in, in Twickenham, so southwest London, so you know, pretty close to Kew Gardens. And um, there's stuff we did there. I mean, first of all, it's, it's active on several layers. So not layers of the same way I was before, so several levels. Um, so one part of a house has, has a different set of hauntings to another part of a house. The bit I tend to do most of was linked to the, one of the original owners of it, Elizabeth of Lauderdale. And I mean, she was an interesting character anyway. Um, she was a... Um, I don't know, of course, if we can put a picture maybe in the show notes or something, but we have all that. But, um, you know, she was quite, you know, she was quite an interesting political character at the time. She was involved with political people at the time. And, you know, she still seems to haunt the house. Um, 
not because she's found there or stuck there, not because she's recording. There's a playfulness about her. There's like the, the guides there, they report that when on the bottom step of the staircase, she'll occasionally nudge them off, which is <laughs> an interaction, yeah? Um, and, you know, a few times I've experienced it myself as a smell of roses when she's around. And that's, that's pretty tangible. You really feel it. I mean, you know, again, it's a fairly known phenomenon that smells can be associated with ghosts. A lot of people who've got a departed relative who used to smoke, for example, might smell cigarette smoke when they're around, yeah? Um, and, you know, again, smelling is hardwired into the brain in a more closer way than the other senses are. So maybe that's why it's very common. Um, but, yeah, you know, Elizabeth Lord seems to be around. I, I, again, subjective speaking, um, my impression is that she was actually quite interested in the occult. Um, she had pictures of mythology around her. I mean, one of them is a picture of Medea from Jason and the Argonauts. So a picture was Medea casting spells upon the ruins by Henry Ferguson. Um, and that's in a room called White Room. And again, going there investigating with a few friends always years ago and the ghost club as well. It's, um, you know, the feeling we picked up on was that was her meditation room. Yeah. And, you know, she used to go there and meditate and just feed upon things and do things. And what you classify her as, I don't know. I mean, would you call her a magician, a witch, a sorceress? I don't know. I mean, in language, yeah. Um, but no, we did an experiment there. And we were just trying to use a bit of magic to sort of find out more about the ghosts than um, what we could normally find out normally. And there's about six of us, and we were in the, that room. I think it was called White Room. Um, and you know, if, we, if we were really doing it in, in a different house, we'd use a candle. But of course, you don't have candles in a stately home. That's just not going to happen. Yet. <laughs> you know, yeah. The insurance would be off the scale. I'd have a fit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah so we sat down there. We ritualised the candle. Um, now, there were various groups in the house, I think three or four. And we had this room for about an hour. And what we did is, we have a picture of Medea I mentioned, and uh, we sat in a circle, we visualised a candle, because we couldn't use a real one, and we visualised walking through the picture, and then just seeing what visions would arise in our minds, yeah? And yeah, we all reported stuff coming out of it, and we reported some bits and pieces which we didn't know about before. Um, you know, at one point I'd noticed is, yeah, I, I noticed that we walked, well, when I did it, we walked, I walked through a room, there was a table, courtiers there, all this sort of, you know, documents on the table. And then walking through the garden, following Elizabeth and Courtier, we walked through this apple orchard, yeah? Now, okay, nowadays, you know, a, a bit more older, all these houses and apple orchards. But at the time, I'd never even thought of that. So the fact that that came up in my head was interesting. And other bits and pieces were also checking out at the time. We were checking out afterwards. And you know, we noticed that we all came out about the same time. And the phenomenon we noticed was, first of all, that the... I won't say all the ghosts, but at least a number of the ghosts in the building were all standing around us as we came out of the trance. Which is, okay, it doesn't, doesn't feel bad. Ghosts are not frightening, normally. Um, you know, it's, it's relaxing a little bit and being quite calm is, is the important thing. And also, none of the other groups reported any phenomena whatsoever when we were doing this experiment. So, you know, again, it shows that if you're doing these things, which, again, you would want to call this magic, why not? If you're doing magic like this, it attracts attention. Ghosts can see it and they're aware of that and can interact with it. And that, you know, again, it, it, it does give you information which become that sort of interface between magic, psychic questing, paranormal investigation and stuff, which you can never do in a lab, but you can get out of that and have experiences. And that's when, when at least for me, it's, it gets really interesting. Mm. You said that when you came out of the trance and noticed that the ghosts were around you, how did you notice that? Was that, did you see them? You didn't see them. Um, I, I don't see ghosts often. I, I saw one of Winchester Mansion actually. I'll tell you that in a moment. But um, no, it's um, you can sense them, and again, it's uh, if, you've, if you've never done this, it's hard to describe it. it it's like you just feel it there. Um, right. Yeah. You know, okay. Another place where you feel them a lot is um, is Richmond Priory in East Sussex. Um, but you know, again, a lot of haunted houses are not just these stately homes. A lot of these houses are just houses, like what we all live in. You know. Um, and again, the best way to experience this, I think, is to go on investigation of a few people. You know, you, you basically go with your mates, yeah, and then all share what you what you feel, and um, all, all share, and then become aware of what you feel. Um, you will find that what happens is um, you might be you, you walk in, you go into a, you know, a mate of yours, right, and let's say your mate is psychic, and you might be walking there and your mate is psychic and quiet. And you, you're feeling all sorts of stuff. And then they might say something. And then you realise that you were feeling it all the time. And it's to learn to recognise that and then almost like expand that feeling in your head 
and you become aware of what you're feeling and you sort of know it's there. And then after a bit of time, it becomes very, very tangible, especially if you've done the sort of psychic, psychic development exercises, such as a middle pillar, or you spend time raising your chakras, all these things like that. And it just becomes something you become very aware of. Mm. And, you know, again, it's, it's not something you necessarily see. Again, I think, as you say, um, our brains construct our reality from what our senses think. Eventually it learns to sort of project it in. But, you know, there's other, there's other ways of tuning, you know, picking up on things, which it will also project in. But it just needs that experience to do it. And it might do it in a symbolic way. So it might put an image of something else in to represent it. Or it might do it in a feeling way, in an electrical way, all sorts of things like that. Mm. One early experiments we were doing is in a, a haunted pub in um, uh, South of North Hertfordshire or South uh, or South Bedfordshire, and um, we were we were experimenting with dowsing rods at the time, and so we just basically bent coat hangers, yeah, yeah, with, with um, laundrette coat hangers, just L shaped, um, and we're walking around. A pub is problematic because you can't do anything in a pub until at least half eleven and cleaned up again. Everyone's gone home and it's quiet. And um, so we're just walking on the grounds at the time. And then people were noticing there was like spots which felt different. So we just went to those spots which felt different, recognised them, focused on what we could feel there. I mean, a lot of it is about feeling. And when you start with that, you, you won't get the, the vision, you won't get the, the sound, the names straight away, but you get the feeling. And when, when you, that becomes tangible, the other things will start to open up a little bit. And, um, you know, people would just go into these places and there were... Um, you know, we, we spot and feeling different, and we, we could find them with rods. We got somebody who never saw the spot, and then find the same spot on the dowsing rods, and it was all just meshing together so nicely. Um, one of the more psychic people there picked up a name Harriet, and I, I don't know if that's accurate or not. Um, it doesn't matter; it's a label. Let's just use Harriet to describe that particular feeling. And it she was interesting, but when you cross dowsing rods, um, when they cross. Normally, they just both cross and hit in the middle, sort of, you know, so they're hitting, you know, the rods cross from both hands, um, you know, sort of in between. But Harriet seemed to be very right handed, about the right rod cross, the left rod wouldn't. So we found spots about the house which would, would, would mesh with her, and they felt the same. And it always did the same thing with different people holding the rods, always the right rod moving, the left rod hardly moving at all. And people were feeling that. And um, we could answer questions, we'd get yes, no of crosses and not, 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 not crossing and so on. And you know, it wasn't a perfect correlation. There's some bits where, you know, some groups had the same questions and got yeses and noes differently. But it was quite high, it was about 80 or 90%, I think. Hmm. So we're looking at that, and again, it's people getting the feeling from that. And that's, that's when it got really, really interesting, because it, it doesn't need to be visual, it doesn't need to be sound, it doesn't need to be so, you know, dramatic as that. It can be very, very subtle, but it's enough to actually say, actually, that was odd because you know my friend was doing that and we got that result. I was doing that. I know I wasn't cheating. I got the same result. How did that work? And mm. when you get those questions, that that sort of begins to open the mind to this, opens the mind to a possibility, and then it makes future investigations more interesting because you know the universe gets a little bit bigger. I think it's interesting that you use that painting of Medea as part of your way of investigating the the house. So, it's an interesting character to to help you with that. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, and it's, you know it, it's be very freeform. You know, um, play with things. Um, I know there's a very good photographer, a late photographer now, Simon Marsden, and he's produced some fantastic photographs, which are all filmed in infrared. Um, you can you can Google him. He's on the Marsden Archive. All his pictures are on there, and you can buy prints of them and so on. But again, pictures like that, evocative pictures. Use them as meditation points, you know. Um, again, I'm, I'm going to want to talk about protection in a moment, if I'm going to tell you this. So, you know, let's not go too fast. But, um, but you know, if there's a picture you, you're interested in, whether it's a piece of art, whatever it is, um, you know, use that as a doorway. You know, just visualise it, close your eyes, walk into it and vision, see what you pick up. It won't be melodramatic. It won't be Hollywood. But things will arise in your head. Start with those. There'll be points of research. Hmm. And it will start subtle, it might take several goes, but, you know, it's, as an exercise, it's worth working on. And even, you know, a photograph, again, protection, which we'll talk about, but um, even a photograph on, a, say, an alleged wanted house, you can use it for that as well, yeah? Take a photograph, walk into it, see what you get, yeah? Mm, definitely. So you mentioned that you, you saw uh, a ghost at Woodchester Mansion, so tell us a bit more about that. 
it was fleeting. It's not brilliant, unfortunately. Um, we, the, the bathroom in Woodchester Mansion is fantastic. It's um, again, you call it a bathroom. I don't know what you call it. The, the bath, it's all cut, it's all cut out of I think sandstone, and like the bath has got um, you know, it's got wolf heads where the taps have been carved in, right? And the shower, they get well, the shower. I mean, it's 18th century. Someone was standing over a bucket of water, right? But um, you know, it's again, it's got carved heads and stuff. It's a beautiful ornate room. And there's dragons carved on the sides and all sorts of things. Um, if you, if you, you know, I've got photographs of it. I'm going to send them to you. Um, but anyway, it's we did a circular there, and all it was it was nothing too big. It was a sort of crazy questing spiritualist. Let's try to get contact circles. About eight of us, we all held hands, made a circle, and literally just for a fleeting second, we were doing that. This woman's head just put her head in the circle, about three, four people around me, and you just see her face for a moment, and it disappeared, and that was it. So. Yeah, it's like all of these things. It's you might have phenomena, you might have weird things happening for a second, and then no beginning, no ending, no answer, no explanation. What was that? You know, and again, you need to learn to be a bit frustrated sometimes. Yeah. And then, you know, the, the other thing I would classify as a ghost I saw. Um, it's um, living in a house in St Albans, about you know, post university we between two thousand and one and two thousand and four, whenever it was exactly. And um again it's like a bedroom wasn't there and it was a summer night, July. Um I can dig out the exact date, it's in a diary somewhere. And um I woke up one night, I had an armchair in the bedroom at the time and I woke up and there was just a man sitting in the armchair. And I was woke up, sitting in bed. It was completely grey, grey as in colourless, yeah, as if the room it was dark, but you can still see there's colour and light and stuff, yeah. But you know, it's um the, the image itself was colourless, yeah. Um and yeah, just there for a moment and then faded. And again, like anything else, no rhyme or reason. What was that about? You know, I remember, you know, saying what the insert spell would have been twice like you, and then it faded. And what else do you say? You know, you you're waking up at two, three in the morning, you know. Um again, I don't know what that was. You know, whether it's just, I don't know, whether it was something wandering through, something into the house. You know what I mean? It's just sometimes these things just happen randomly. And, you know, the thing is, the more you do this stuff, the more it will switch you on, make you aware. You will have these odd experiences. You end uh, your essay with a section on magical protection. Just talk a little bit about that and, and why it's important. Yeah. Um, I mean, the first thing to say is... It's very much a common sense approach. Um, there is a relationship between being as protected as you can be versus being as perceptive as you can be. And of course, if you're as protected as you can be, you're not going to pick up so much. So you need to be aware of that balance. And so to do that, you need to be responsible for yourself and you need to sort of know what you're doing. Most of the time, I don't bother with protection. Um, again, I've been at this for a long time now and I've sort of got a sort of sense of what I'm doing and can take things off fairly quickly once I once I realise what's going on. Um, now, if I was investigating, let's say, a haunted mental hospital associated with very violent psychiatric disturbed individuals, I would definitely protect up as much as I could. And what I would do, I'll do exercises like a middle pillar, I'd place my clackers and visualise, you know, a shell around me basically as strong as I could. I'd also have some common sense stuff. I'd have at least some, you know, digging into folklore. Um, you know, some iron in my car, if not in my pocket. I'd have some salt somewhere nearby, things like that. And um, I'd be very, very careful. Um, the other thing to have also is uh, chocolate or cheese. It's one of the few things I got right in Harry Potter is when you have something high protein, uh, chocolate, for example, you eat that, it gets your stomach going, the digestion going, it brings you back into your body, so it stops shutting you down, yeah? Uh, cheese is better. I'm, I don't have a sweet tooth, but more people like chocolate but anyway you know chocolate's more portable that's that's the thing yeah you know what i mean you carry a block of cheese around you people think you're really weird yeah um but you know so it, it, if it was something like that i would definitely have protection if there's something in between i would probably be a bit half half-hearted about it have something ready but not really need to use it and you'd go by feel um you wouldn't walk into a haunted house blind to investigate um, again, it, it's not buffer here. Yeah? It, it's you'd go through, you'd have a walk around, you'd see what you feel before you try to do anything. You get a sense of what the, what the lay of the land is, and you don't have a think what your strategy is going to be. So you decide what rooms you're going to have a vigil in. You describe where you're going to do things and what you're going to do. You know, would you feel safe using the Ouija boards here? Would you feel safe having a vigil here? Would you feel safe? Um, you know, I, I don't use cameras myself, um, apart from entertainment photography. I don't try to prove a ghost. You can't. Um, 
Like, you know, would I feel safe leaving a camcorder here, for example, if I wanted to do that? All those things I'd use as a, on a judgment basis, on a side-by-side basis. And it's the same if, you know, what I talked about of walking through photographs earlier. Um, if you're going to sort of take a photograph or have a photograph, say, of the family house you grew up in, um, and then want to walk through that as a, as a visionary exercise to see what you can talk on, I, I probably wouldn't have bothered because you, you grew up in it, unless you've, got, unless you've got a bad history there. If you're going to Google the most scary haunted house you can find and then try to do it, I'll certainly have some protection. So it's looking at what you need to do to do that and making sure that you actually base it upon what you're trying to do. Again, step back, ask a question, what do you want to achieve here? Do you want to scare yourself? In which case, don't bother with protection at all. Do you want to find out something interesting? In which case, balance what you're trying to achieve with that, 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 that trade-off between protection versus perception. Or do you want to completely just have an experience which does nothing, in which case, protect up? So it, it's, I think, important to just get that balance right and then think of what you're doing. And, you know, it's not a, it's not a recipe book approach. Um, I said what Harry Potter gets right. What Harry Potter gets wrong is it spells our recipes. Magic is not a recipe book approach. You need to sort of feel where you are. You need to sort of adapt what you're doing. Mm. And magicians are not really reading these books. And magicians are going to go through and work out what's needed and take experience and then literally just feel for it and i know this word's overused it becomes much more shamanic then becomes much more you're interacting with the spirit of the land the spirit of a location the spirit of a site and you're then interacting and feeling and getting information back and that's when it becomes that experience and that's where it's so 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 crucial and so cool i think because that's you walk away from that when it goes right with actually something you will always hold in your mind as actually this is proof that the universe is bigger than physics paints us. And then, you know, you, that, 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 that peace of mind it gives you that the world is bigger, that there's more chance that there's life after death, and all those things we all, we all think about, it's all there. Mm, definitely. So we're almost out of time, but one last thing I did want to talk to you about, Paolo, is that you have started something called the Secret Lines of London. And um, I'm lucky enough to be a member of the Facebook group and I'm really enjoying it so far. But do you want to just talk a little bit about that and that, that project? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I live in Somerset at the moment. I'm expecting to move into London very soon. There's a few things to put in place first. And I used to live in London previously. And London is rich everything. You know, it's it's got haunted houses, it's got magic sites, it's got all sorts of things. And so it's moving to London. I really want to sort of get projects going where people are actually experiencing things in London. And you know, it's like there's all sorts of stuff. There's one I'll throw away now for three. And it's like Temple Church in um in Temple. It's um the Templar Church, people saw it with Da Vinci Code, interesting building, the Round Church, um, which is just by Temple. Um and yeah, the stories there I've heard, there are um, you know, six pillars in the sort of central part and side. And the people do, you know, people stand by each pillar and do a resounding loud clap. It sets the energy off of the place. Now, I've heard that story several times with different people. What does that mean? That's an experiment to try and see and document, because as far as I know, it's not in any books. Um, there's stories about a time machine in Brompton Cemetery. What's that about? You know, I don't expect it's a TARDIS there. Believe me, I'll, I'll have crowbar to open my nerve, it was. But, um, you know, it's um, there's all these little bits about London, there's all these ghost stories. And to approach a haunted city, and London's a haunted city and a magical city and a rich city, not as it's done before. There's books on haunted London, brilliant books, fantastic books. Um, a lot of them are gazetteers of ghosts. If you go to the Tower of London, you get this ghost. If you go to Drury Lane Theatre, you get this ghost and so on. Brilliant, great. But we've done all that. That's been done. There's no point doing it all over again. If I write a book, I'm not going to give another list of ghosts. It's my bother, you know. But I'd, what I'd rather do is get people who want to do this sort of thing, people who want to do questing, and actually see if we can find out new things about London. And so I started off, you know, planning to move to London as a way to sort of start getting excited about it. I'm not putting that much on it yet. Um, I've been a bit wonderful weather the last few weeks. But, you know, the idea is get something up there, you know, at least a few times a week. Well, when I hit London, start getting experiments out there, getting people who are interested to come along and do things. You know, it's, it, it will totally be no profit. But obviously, if there's a place we've got to pay to get in, we'll split it in a no profit way and do all that. And just we'll, we'll just do things on an experimental basis, not within a framework of physics. There'll be space for all of that as well, but certainly within a framework of being investigators, actually just finding out and trying new things and looking at how it fits together with other parts of London, other sites of London, the lines of London. 
So, you know, I mean, for example, one, one place I've written about is St Pancras in Dispy Euston, which ties into the goddess Ellen of the Ways. It ties into quite a lot of the psychic questing stuff. There's bits we can tie into there with places around London, such as Fearbold Park, Mansion and Essex. It ties in with um, Andy Collins's work with the Seven Swords, all those things. So it, it becomes a line. So if we can find out these lines, we walk these lines, we'll find phenomena. So at the moment, I'm not quite in London yet. I'm, I'm just getting it going still. It's going to be a bit slow and up and down while I still think about how it still needs to be. Um, if people want to join, yeah, we've got a Twitter group. We've got a Facebook group. It, it, it's, a, it's a private group. The only reason it's private is because people start posting memes and I'd rather keep it topical. Uh, but generally, you know, anyone's welcome who's interested and just wants to find out more about London, magic, folklore, psychic questioning and all these things and how it fits together and then see where it leads. Because, you know, if we decide where it's going to go, we're going to fix that path, that, that, that place. If we just open up these possibilities, find these lines and walk them, who knows where it's going to go? So it's, yeah, it's trying to sort of do it in a more adventurous way and see, see what happens. Mm, well, um, I've, I've been really enjoying it so far. I'm, I'm excited to see how it develops. Well, Paolo, this has been a, a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's been fantastic to talk about it. I'm happy to talk more at any point. Brilliant. Well, if people want to find out more about you and the the Secret Lines of London project, how best do they do that? Um, Well, I mean, the easiest way to find me, I mean, find me on Facebook. um, Find me on Twitter, um, at Paolo Samut, P-A-O-L-O-S-A-M-U-T. And at Secret Lines of London, you'll find that there as well. Um, and yeah, find me on any one of those and I'll point you to the other points as well. It's probably the easiest way. Um, do you do show notes? I do, yes. I'll put that information in, in those. <laughs> I mean, I'm happy to talk to anyone, really. You know, it's, um, there's so many ways to do this. And I think when people get too caught up in this is how it works, this is not how it works, it becomes dogmatic and it's hard to have conversations. But when, you know, we'll approach it as questers, we'll approaching these mysteries and trying to find out more. Realise that we might be wrong about all sorts of things. Like just let's just find out more. Let's try something new, and then yeah, that that's the approach we want to build because that's the approach which gives us the experiences. And I think from there we can actually, on a personal level, gain some wonderful treasure, and maybe on a group level, on a bigger level, maybe find things out which could be a benefit to everyone. So you know, it's it's all starting. Let's see what happens. Absolutely, yeah. Well, that's um, yeah, a great place to end the episode. Thank you, Paolo. Fantastic, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Paolo. His approach to investigating the paranormal in the field is a really interesting one, and definitely something that feels more personal and rewarding than traditional hardware-driven methods. Check out the Secret Lines of London project if you enjoyed this episode. Please also consider rating it wherever you listen, and sharing it on social media as it really helps the podcast to grow and find new listeners. You can follow some other sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod and subscribe on all good podcast platforms. You can now also donate to the podcast via Kofi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at Sphere HQ, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time. Be safe and well, and I hope you'll join me again soon for another episode of Some Other Sphere.